Our call to worship this morning is responsive. Um, it's printed on the sheets, but it's also on the screen. Um, if you, if I will say the words in normal or black type, if you would like to join in the words in italic or white type. Christ is risen. Alleluia, alleluia. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. It is fitting that the heavens should rejoice and that the earth should be glad, and that the whole world, both visible and invisible, should keep the feast. For Christ is risen, the everlasting joy. Now all things are filled with light, heaven and earth, and all places under the earth. All creation celebrates the resurrection of Christ. It is the day of resurrection. Let us be glorious in splendour, for the celebration, and let us embrace one another. Let us seek also brothers and sisters to those that hate us, and in the resurrection, let us forgive all things. So, let us cry. Christ has risen from the dead and has bestowed life to those who were dead. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. Alleluia, alleluia. So let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Dear God, this is the best day of the year. For on Easter Day, we celebrate that Jesus, who was dead, is alive again. We see his promises come true. Despair does not have the last word. 
death is not the end. Even at the very saddest and scariest times of our lives, even when we feel that we are as bad as we possibly can be, Jesus is Lord. He has taken away the power of bad things and offers us life and hope. On this day of light and gladness, help us to be Easter people, thinking and speaking and doing what we believe so that Christ's good news and new creation may become not only something we hope for or dream about, but the beginning of a lived reality. Hear this prayer, which we offer through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Day, and I guess some people will have had some chocolate treats already. Anybody had any chocolate treats already? Oh, phew, somebody has. That's good. Maybe you'll get some later. You might even get one in a minute, you never know. They come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes in different countries, and it seems to me it's mostly in Western Europe that we go in for chocolate treats at Easter, so that probably says something about Western Europeans. I've got some pictures of some chocolate treats from different countries. We'll see if we can guess which country they might be from and what they might be meant to symbolise. So, what's the first picture? Can anybody see what that one is a picture of? 
Can anyone work out what it is? Is that bell? <laughs> yeah, well done, Anita. It's a bell. It's, it is a chocolate bell. It's called a cloche of volant. Are you impressed by my foreign words? Anybody uh, know where cloche volant come from? France, indeed. Well done. Yes, flying bells. And the legend is that on Good Friday, after the, the service... Uh, I don't know. It would, it would be made in France by just the local chocolate makers. It could be, Len. You could well be right. Thank you. Um, so in France, the legend is that on Good Friday, after the service, you don't hear the bells again until Easter Sunday morning. And what happens is they fly all the way to Rome, where they wait till the Pope says something on Easter Sunday morning at midnight, and then they fly all the way back to Paris and Versailles and places in France to be ready to ring out. So, interesting story, but they have bells in France. Okay, what's that one? Yes. An Easter bunny. It could be an Easter bunny. Um, I have one here. Just because this happens to be my favourite of the things you can buy. I've probably been a bit far back, haven't I? Otherwise it won't make it until the end of the service. And not too close to the chocolate, otherwise it will be very tragic. So it's actually an Easter hare, but we tend to say an Easter bunny. You're quite right. And they're quite popular in Germany. Unfortunately, I don't know any German, so I don't know what the German for hare is. And that's because at this time of year, if you go out into the countryside, and I used to live in a place where this happened, and if you're driving along the road, you see hares up on their back legs like this, boxing, boxing hares. And that's how, it's like they say, find a nice lady hare, and the boy hares are thinking, I'd quite like to go out with her, and I'd like quite to go out with her, so they kind of fight over who gets, gets to have her as their girlfriend. So that became the Easter Bunny, because we, we see them at this time of year. So that became the Easter Bunny. So I'm just going to move him back to there. <laughs> might or might not work. Okay, what's that one? Chicken. <laughs> oh, yep, there's a chicken. Any idea where they might have chickens? Any what countries might have chickens? You, you get eggs from chickens, that's true. Um, sorry, I don't think I'm carrying very well. So you get eggs from chickens. Um, chocolate chickens are also used in France. Um, and chickens are, are often born around this time of year if hens are allowed to live freely. So you'd see new chicks, a sign of new life. And you're quite right, we also have eggs. And in a minute, we will be passing some eggs round. Anyone over here who's not had a chance to answer yet, see what those are. That's right, those are chocolate fish. Uh, they come from France as well. They're much more creative. Anybody know why they have chocolate fish in France? Pardon? Paris, they have chocolate fish. They do, well done. Yep, they have fish because they have this tradition of the, the poisson d'avril, which is like our April fool. And you sneak up behind Neil when he's not looking on the 1st of April and you stick a paper fish on his back and then you go, ha, 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 poisson d'avril, and run away. Something like that. Um, anyway, that's why they have eggs, uh, eggs, fish at Easter, chocolate fish. And they also have chocolate scallop shells or coquille Saint-Jacques, as they call them. And does anybody know what the, the scallop shell can symbolise in, in churchy world? 
It is St. James, well done, whoever says St. James, yeah, it is the symbol of St. James. Um, it's also quite often the symbol of the pilgrim. So it's a kind of reminder of the pilgrimage and the spiritual side of, of Easter in chocolate. One more, I think. Um, this one is one you might get in Wales, primarily. Um, they have actually got some down in the Patisserie Francaise down the road, but they're basically Welsh. Can you see what they are, Freya or Sarah? Lollipops, and what's on the lollipop? Can you see? Daffodils, that's right. And daffodils come out at this time. And I think they're sometimes called Lent lilies, aren't they, daffodils? So they're out at this time of year. So we're going to sing a song now, which picks up some of these symbols and a few more that help us to think of new life and resurrection. And while we're doing that singing, I'm going to ask Jen and Aidan if you would hand out the chocolate eggs to everybody. Now, if you're a vegan or a non-dairy person, we have some chocolate discs, okay, in there. Um, Otherwise, it's just ordinary chocolate. But please do take an egg or a disc as we sing our next song. It's quite heavy, Aidan, so you might need your mum to help you carry it.
we'll carry on serving eggs upstairs because um, not everybody's had one yet and we don't want to forget the upstairs people. We're going to look at some symbols now that you might find used at Easter if you went into a church. These might appear on the robes of the, the minister or the priest if you went into a church that they wear robes. Or they might appear on um, the fall, on the lectern, or on the table, or the altar, or whatever they might have. And see if you can think why they might use these symbols. So first of all, um, can somebody tell me what that one is? A butterfly. Would you hear to say butterfly backs? Yeah? Well done, a butterfly. So why might a butterfly be a symbol of resurrection? We've just sung about it in case you didn't know. Anybody any idea? Yes. That's right, they fly up, they don't they? They come out of the cocoon, you get lovely fuzzy caterpillars that go and eat lots and lots of things, and then they wrap themselves up in a cocoon and go to sleep, and it looks like they've gone. And then they tunnel their way out, spread their wings, and fly away, and they're beautiful. So a butterfly is a sign of resurrection. And you know, know what this one is? Okay. A peacock. Anybody know what happens with peacocks? They have big tails. That's right, yep, they spread their tails out to attract the females. But once they've done that, once it's gone past that time of year, tail feathers fall out. And they just look plain and boring. And then they grow again. So the peacock, with its new tail, its new feathers proudly displayed, is also sometimes used as a symbol of resurrection. Anyone know what that one is? That one might surprise you that that gets used in a church. Just see if I can get somebody who's not had an answer yet. Who knows? Thank you. Yep, that's a, it's a phoenix. It could be a chocolate bird, but it's a, it's a phoenix. What's the story of the phoenix, Wendy? That's right. So it, the phoenix bird dies, and it's reborn in the flames. And the church decided that was a good symbol, so they pinched it from the, the ancient mythology. Anyone know what that one is? It's not a thistle, actually. Um, it would be quite appropriate in Scotland if it was, but it isn't. A what? A cho- it could be a chocolate flower, but it isn't that either. It's actually a pomegranate. The pomegranate um, is found in the Old Testament. The priests had pomegranates around the bottom of their robes. But that's not why we use it as an Easter symbol. There is a Roman myth about somebody called Proserpina. Proserpina, thank you. (laughs) Can you tell us anything about Proserpina, Katrina, or have you forgotten? Um, Well, it's technically the Greek myth of Persephone. Okay. And she eats, Hades tricks her into eating three pomegranate seeds, and then he spirits her away to the underworld. And her mother gets very upset and makes it winter because her mother was the goddess of the seasons. So um, when her daughter gets taken into the other world, she's sad that it's winter time. And then in spring, her daughter comes up. No, no, no. Well done. So there's a resurrection myth from 
that from um, ancient times. I'm glad somebody knew it because I couldn't remember it and I didn't write it down. But the pomegranate, the pomegranate was the symbol for that myth. And the church thought, you know what, that's actually a good symbol too. Because the pomegranate is packed full of seeds. Hundreds and hundreds of seeds. You cannot eat a pomegranate with dignity, it has to be said. But the, so that's also a symbol that's used for resurrection. And I think that's all my symbols. It is. Fantastic. So we're going to sing another song now that actually takes us into the story of what we're celebrating today. going to listen now to part of the story of that first Easter Sunday. It actually starts on the Saturday because I'm starting a bit before the reading that's listed um, in the sheet. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. And that last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers? Go. Make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, 
For an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has been raised as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message to you. So they left the tomb quickly, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, You must say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among Jews to this day. So now if you're a small person or a person who doesn't want to listen to me talk, um, Emma and Katrina are going to help you to do some interesting craft activities and I'm going to talk to everybody else. So if you want to um, move around, that would be fantastic. On March the 8th, 2014... 12 crew and 227 passengers boarded flight MH370 at Kuala Lumpur, expecting to arrive in Beijing. Almost two months later, and despite international efforts using the latest technology, what happened to that flight remains a mystery. (coughs) 
it has seemingly been deduced beyond reasonable doubt that it went down in the Indian Ocean, hundreds of miles west of Australia. But how and why remain unknown and may indeed be unknowable. Already, there are all sorts of conspiracy theories, raising from the plausible to the plain old-fashioned ridiculous. As more time passes, it's less and less likely that we'll ever know the full story. It may well remain one of the unsolved mysteries of our time. If that's the case with something that happened in the 21st century, how much more so with something that happened 2,000 years ago without the technology and scientific knowledge that we take for granted. I wrestled a bit with whether or not to bring this sermon today, but it felt as the week went on that this is what God was telling me I ought to be sharing with you. Back in the 1970s, our RE teacher, a devout evangelical Christian, was very eager to convince his pupils of the veracity of his faith. As part of the non-compulsory, sorry, the compulsory non-examined lessons, he devoted one to various theories, conspiracy or otherwise, surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Mr. Dean, for that was his name, was not a foolish man. He knew he was not permitted to proselytize. Nonetheless, he introduced a group of teenagers to theories and understandings that I suspect few would hear in church. I'm sure he hoped that some at least would conclude that the most likely explanation was the traditional Christian doctrine of resurrection. The better part of 40 years later, I'm really grateful to him for that lesson, not just as one who was and remains convinced of the resurrection, but also as one who would explore this mystery many years later as a theological student and with others as a minister. But before we look very briefly, because we don't have all that much time, at some of those theories, it's perhaps important and helpful to remind ourselves just how significant Jesus is, not just in Christianity, but also to people of several other faiths. His story and this mystery continue to be hugely significant on a global scale. During Lent, we listened to some of the accounts of people who had encounters with Jesus, as recorded in John's Gospel. And we saw at least some of them travel a journey which was intellectual or spiritual, from seeing Jesus, first of all, as a Jewish man, then to identifying him as a rabbi, then as a prophet, and finally recognising and naming him as Messiah. This kind of covers the spread of understandings of Jesus in different world faiths. And we're going to start with the Abrahamic faiths of Judaism and Islam. Jews accept that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person, a rabbi who lived in what we would term the first century. Increasingly today, Jewish scholars value the teachings of Jesus who has been described by one of them as a teacher of timeless ethical truths. However, any suggestion that he might be any more than a teacher is refuted. Messianic Jews are not considered by either Orthodox or Reformed Jews to remain within the sweep of Judaism. 
Muslims, too, share the conviction that Jesus lived and taught. But they go a step further. They declare him to be a prophet of Allah. Allah is simply the Arabic word for God. Now, there is no single universally accepted Islamic understanding of how Jesus' life on earth ended. But they certainly, on the whole, do not believe he was messianic or divine. He was a prophet. Interestingly, as with Judaism, there is a small strand of messianic Islam who do believe Jesus was the Messiah. The three Abrahamic faiths, all of whom accord some recognition to Jesus, account for roughly half the world's population. That's a heck of a lot of people. But what about the other half? In several Eastern religions, notably in Buddhism and Baha'i, Jesus is not only highly regarded, but is viewed by some people as a god, as divine, an avatar or an incarnate deity who lived on earth, although they wouldn't recognize him as having a unique role as Messiah. So the idea that Jesus is divine isn't uniquely Christian, and that often surprises people when they first hear it. Of course, there are lots of people who self-define as atheist or agnostic or any of numerous other faiths and worldviews. Some of those will acknowledge Jesus as significant and say he was a good teacher, he had some good stories, he was a good man, and if only blah, blah, blah. Others deny his existence. But surely it cannot be insignificant that the stories of Jesus continue to influence so many people around the world. There has to be something about those stories, that the influence transcends boundaries of time, culture, and even worldview. So, let's return to some of the theories around the resurrection. We haven't got time to do justice to any of them, and there are many, But we can get a sense from the account in Matthew's Gospel that from the very beginning there were attempts by devout Jewish people both to thwart a faked resurrection, the guards were posted to prevent the disciples stealing the body, and to cover up the claimed resurrection. The guards were bribed to claim that they'd been asleep when such theft allegedly occurred. Matthew's account, which does have external corroboration, asserts that this story is still told among Jews to this day. And indeed, in a sense, it is. If Jesus was executed for blasphemy and insurrection, then an explanation is needed to counter the claims of his followers that he rose from the dead. And the stolen body is the most obvious choice. Scholars suggest four groups of people who could have considered stealing the body. Grave robbers, Jesus' own family, his disciples, or the Jewish leaders. So why might they have done it? Grave robbing wasn't uncommon in the first century. Corpses were often taken away for ritual practices. But it does seem pretty unlikely that the mutilated body of an executed criminal even one perhaps high-profile as Jesus may have been, would have been their target. And so, generally speaking, that one is discounted. 
it's certainly plausible that his family might have wanted to take Jesus away and bury him in a place of their choosing. But if so, surely this would have become known and recorded somewhere, with his followers perhaps visiting that place to remember their leader, at least for a time. So again, it doesn't seem a terribly likely explanation. Which leads to the third possibility, the idea that the religious authorities might have wanted to prevent the tomb becoming a shrine, and so they reburied the body at a secret location. Not so dissimilar from what happened in our own time with Osama bin Laden being buried at sea. But if so, if that had been what they did, if they buried Jesus in a secret location, once the claims of resurrection sightings occurred, they would have easily been able to refute them. They could have said, look, actually, that's where he is. So it doesn't quite seem to work. Which leaves only the disciples. And the premise of a pious deceit whereby the body was stolen to support their claim of resurrection. This is still problematic for many, many reasons. So as records as we have in the Gospels indicate that the disciples were only able retrospectively to recognise anything Jesus had said as hinting at resurrection. So they would have had no motivation to fake it. Indeed, not only were they not expecting it, They were hiding away behind locked doors, fearing for their very lives. The theory is further undermined by the fact that the first witnesses to the empty tomb are consistently identified as women, who would have been deemed unreliable witnesses in the culture of their day. And it is them who are charged with reporting to unbelieving men what they have seen. So either we have an incredibly sophisticated fabrication with the disciples pretending to be frightened and the women pretending not to know, or the simpler, if no less incredible, resurrection story. Whilst it's not impossible, the stolen body hypothesis is generally considered to be pretty weak, especially given the presence of the guards at the tomb. So what other theories might there be? One theory, which is by and large dismissed, is that Jesus had an identical twin brother. And after Jesus' death, and after the disciples stole the body, this twin brother was presented as the resurrected Jesus. Whilst the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas offers limited support for the idea of Jesus having a twin, this hypothesis falls apart at the point of the Ascension story, if nowhere else because it simply defers an inexplicable supernatural event. Where did the twin go? And why did the early church continue to tell the story the way it did? Some rationalist theologians have explored a swoon hypothesis, which exists in a number of variants, but basically asserts that Jesus didn't die, but swooned, or lost consciousness, and revived or was resuscitated in the cool of the tomb in order to be released by his followers, who may have dressed themselves in white clothes for the purpose. The chief weakness with these arguments is they don't fit with any credible medical understanding of death by crucifixion. It's probably fair to say that neither does resurrection, but that's the main argument against the swoon hypothesis. It just doesn't seem to make sense. 
I mentioned that Jesus is significant in some other faiths. Islamic understandings of what happened vary, but they offer us other ways to come to the story. Some Muslims do have a variation on the swoon hypothesis, but most like, the most widely held view is that Jesus never was actually crucified. God simply substituted somebody at the last minute who looked remarkably like him, and Jesus ascended to heaven from where he will return as a prophet at the end of time. Now, these views can be held by very devout Muslims, and we have to be very careful not to dismiss them on the grounds of implausibility, because we expect people not to dismiss our understandings of what happened on the same basis. The fact is, though, that both Christian and Islamic understandings need a supernatural or divine involvement. Belief in a first-century ascension and eventual return at the end of time is shared by the two faiths, even if understood differently. It seems to me, then, we can't get a satisfactory answer, a satisfactory explanation of these events based on any external, verifiable, historical evidence. And there have been written more than enough books by believers and unbelievers alike who bear testimony to the forlornness of such an attempt. You just can't sort it out. If, then, we accept that the story has a historical basis, we have to choose between the Jewish view that the disciples stole the corpse the Islamic view that Jesus never died but was assumed to heaven, or the Christian view that he rose from death and was seen by many of his followers before ascending to heaven. We don't have time today to think about the resurrection appearances or the attempts to rationalise them and explain them away as if they are some kind of individual or corporate vision or hallucination rather than the real encounters the Gospels assert. And to be honest, I'm not sorry about that. Because it does seem, again, that these efforts to rationalise or demystify or demythologise the story ultimately are to miss the point. Christian faith has at its heart a very profound mystery that, in the very real death, of a Nazarene rabbi called Jesus, God drew into the very heart of God's self all the pain, all the sorrow, all the suffering of sin and death. And that through the resurrection, unexpectedly unexpectedly witnessed by peasant women at break of day and terrified artisans who responded to this preposterous claim, That's what's at the heart of our faith, that the cross is about God sucking all the bad things into God. The resurrection is the demonstration of that. The Apostle Paul put it like this. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses to God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
The fact is, I cannot prove the resurrection to you, and nobody can. But I do believe it. I believe it firmly and wholeheartedly. The how is a mystery, but the what and the why, for me anyway, are abundantly clear. God loved the world so much that Christ entered our world to draw out the venom of sin and the sting of death in order that the life of eternity might be ours. This is the heart of the Easter message. This is what we celebrate with chocolate and flowers and colour, with hymns and with prayers. Christ is risen. Alleluia. Amen. Our prayers for others in the world can sometimes, I don't know about you, but seem really heavy and hard. It can be hard to to play the hope into situations. It can be hard to see where the green blade could possibly rise. But in our prayers this morning, I want to encourage us to let go of Good Friday and to pray for others and ourselves with the bright hope and the shining raiments of Easter Sunday. And to help us do that, we're going to move some pieces of cloth around. And Flay and Sarah will start here. And we've got a piece upstairs which Leanne's got. And as we pray, we're going to pass the long pieces of cloth along the rows, just winding in and out, so everybody gets a chance to feel there's another piece will come in a moment too, to feel the cloth moving. Because hope isn't bound by cloth, but moves freely. It moves with a heartbeat, with the rumour, with a rushing tide. And so let's begin. And let us pray. Triumphant Jesus, you raise Lazarus from the dead, saying, Unbind him, let him go free. You too were bound and laid to rest in a cold tomb freshened by myrrh. Unbind us so that we may also go free. In sorrow, we left you as the dead Jesus. And in wonder, you return to us as a risen Christ. Untied from the strips of linen, you offered us a newfound freedom. Raise us from the coldness of the tomb in which we are trapped. With this freedom, we are empowered to make choices about our lifestyle and attitudes. But our human frailty prevents us from being courageous by taking those first vital steps. Release us from the self-imposed exile of our prejudices. We pray for those like the women of old whose lives have been stopped because they couldn't roll away a stone that was blocking their path to a new life and hope. Roll away the stone of despair and hopelessness that the light of Jesus Christ may shine into the darkness to bring joy and warmth again. Roll away the stone for those still stuck at Good Friday, those whose strength is failing, whose spirits are flagging, whose determination is being sapped. Roll away the stone that we might better see the path stretching out before us, 
a path unused except for your footprints, etched out in the morning dew. In the light and the glory of the resurrection, we pray for our world. For all those who today would struggle to find joy in the resurrection story. Risen Christ, when darkness overwhelms, may your dawn beckon. When fear paralyzes, may your touch release. When grief torments, may your peace enfold. When memories haunt, may your presence heal. When justice fails, may your anger ignite. When apathy stagnates, may your challenge renew. When courage leaves, may your spirit inspire. When despair grips, may your hope restore. And when death threatens, may your resurrection light lead. Amen. Amen.
pray, shall we? It was early Easter Sunday morning that the angel rolled the stone away and revealed new hope for the whole of creation. Loving Easter God, we thank and praise you for your many gifts. And as we bring these our gifts of money, we ask that you would help us to spend them wisely, to share that good news, that glorious hope with more and more people. Amen. I think we have one or two people who are perhaps a weeny bit tired now. Whilst you've been politely listening to me talk, the children have been doing some marvellous crafts. And I thought it would be just really nice if, um, as an Easter parade, we could see what you have done. So would you like to um, just come and show us at the front? Um, And if it's okay with mums and dads, it would be lovely just to get a photo of that. I know we don't normally do photos halfway through services, but... Come and show the grown-ups these beautiful hats and flowers and things that you have been making. Because I think they're absolutely wonderful. And thank you so much to Emma, to Katrina, to George. I think Anita was also secretly having a bit of a a go of helping in there. Some amazing, beautiful craft. Are you going to go and be in my photo, Layla? If anybody's not happy um, for me to take the photo... Please shout. And we're not going to put these anywhere that, other than churchy places. So thank you. They're fantastic, aren't you? Do you want to give them a round of applause? So fantastic. Super duper hats uh, with chicks and crosses and ribbons and stickers. So thank you so much for doing that. You can probably, I think all the children could have an extra Easter egg to take home for that because otherwise I'm going to be getting very, very large. So we're going to sing our final hymn of praise together and please remain standing if you're able to after that for the final blessing which will be interactive.
when we are despairing, when the world is full of grief, when we see no way ahead, when hope has gone away, roll out the stone. Although we fear change, although we are not ready, although we'd rather weep and run away, roll back the stone. Because we're coming with the women. Because we hope where hope is vain. Because you call us from the grave and show us the way. Roll back the stone. Roll back the stone, eternal God, three in one, creating, redeeming and sustaining us and all creation this day and every day.